Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. It's good to be with you, the faithful few that are left in the city, not traveling. I'm going to uh, wrap up our series today on love, joy, peace, and hope. I'm going to talk about love today. Um, and, but before we do that, I'm going to ask two of my daughters to come up, Noelle and Jocelyn. And we're going to light the, uh, the center candle. Um, you guys can have this one. I'm a little bit hot. There we go. Um, and which actually is the Christ candle. So I'm going to talk about love today, but I'm just going to let you in that I'm going to talk about Jesus. Um, that's really the point. Um, so we're going to light the center one, and then they're going to read uh, the Christmas story for us. Maybe we're going to light it. Come on, you can do it. Yes. All right. Here. All right. Here, Jocelyn. You, you need that. Okay, right there. In the sixth month of the angel, Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee, Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of Most High. And the Lord God will give to him a throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born, be called the Holy Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, her old age, conceived a son, and the sixth month with her who has called barren. For nothing it will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to the world, the word, and the angel departed from her. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cornelius was governor of Syria. All went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from his town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was one of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and lay him in a manger because there was no, room, no place for them in the inn. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and their glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. 
You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with a multitude of angels of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in a manger. And when they saw, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at the shepherds told at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. And at the eight, end of eight days, when he was circumcised. circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. All right. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that we get to celebrate Jesus this time of year. Father, we thank you that we get uh, to look at your love this morning. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us and guide us and that you would reveal more of yourself to each one of us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Give this to Jared. All right, so I want to start by asking this question as we think about love. How would you define love? What do you think people in our city would say if you said, how would you define love? If you're new with us, you get to answer. Um, so what do you think? How would you define love, or how would people around us define love? Kindness. Kindness, OK. Feeling gooey, Feeling gooey towards someone. Feeling gooey towards someone just like, oh. <laughs> All right. What else? Self-sacrifice, okay? Someone that sacrifices for you, okay? <coughs> Giving? Forgiving. Forgiving, okay. Good. What else? I think our culture thinks love is acceptance or agreement. Okay, if you just accept me, whatever I say, whatever I do, just accept whatever I do. Okay, that's love. Okay? Commitment? Commitment? Okay? Good. What else? Okay, just a stronger adjective for something. Pizza, salt and straw, <laughs> cookies, cake, something. Yeah. What else? It's transient. It's transient, so it just kind of comes and goes. Yeah, it fades, you fall into it. Sure. Concern for another person. Okay. Genuine concern for someone? Sure. I looked up a few quotes on uh, what kids say about love. This is a seven-year-old, and they asked him what love was. And he said, if love is anything like learning how to spell, I don't want any part of it. It takes too long. <laughs> Greg, who's eight, said, love is the most important thing in the world. But baseball is pretty good, too. May, who's nine, says this, no one is sure why love happens, but I heard it has something to do with how you smell. That's why perfume and deodorant are so popular. And I made this one up, but I'm sure that it's true. Uh, Jocelyn, who's 10. Well, 
Are you 11 now? Oh. She's 11. She used to be 10. When she was 10, she said this. Love is someone who gives me a horse. Right? Right? Love is one of those words, I think, that is often really hard to completely capture in a definition. Um, it's one of those things that like, has so many different things that describes it or words that we use for it. Um, but I, I, wanna, I want you to turn over to John chapter 3, because what we find in John chapter 3 is God says, I want to give you actually a complete definition of what love is. I want to give you the reason why love is talked about at Christmas um, with all the giving of gifts. And what we find here in John chapter 3 is Jesus saying, I'm going to explain to you the reason why there's all this hoopla with the angels singing and the virgin birth and the star and the wise men and Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in the manger. The whole Christmas story, me coming, and this is why it's important. He says this in John chapter 3, verse 16. This is probably a very familiar verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You see, for God, love is more than just a bunch of different words that make up a definition. For God, love is actually a person. Jesus is the definition of God's love. God said, I want to teach, I want to demonstrate, I want to define what love is. And the best way to do that is to give you Jesus so that you might believe in me. So that you would believe in God. Basically, it's this idea that if you want to, if you want to, to learn or, or teach or something about a subject, you go to the source. You want to know what your teacher said you should take uh, care of for your test and what 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 you should study, you go and ask your teacher. You could ask a friend, but they might not give you everything that the teacher actually would wants. If you want to know about how a computer works, you go and buy one and you take it apart. You talk to the software engineers who wrote the thing. You study it and you see how it works. You talk to, to all those people. It's the same reason why, why doctors go for years and years, and, and part of their study, they spend hours upon hours working with cadavers, like cutting them up, dissecting them, looking at how things work. God is saying here, basically, there's no one more trustworthy or better qualified to teach humans about the existence of God than Jesus. And it's why is because Jesus is God himself. John 3.16 begins with this, for God. You see, Jesus coming at Christmas really teaches us that there is a God, that God exists. John Piper says it this way, Jesus is absolutely saturated with his consciousness of God. Basically, everything Jesus says relates to God. Everything Jesus does relates to God. He's, he's God with, if you want to say it this way, God with a, with a costume on, with a human costume on. Earlier in John, it says that God took on flesh. John's building off of that as he gets to chapter 3 here. And he says, so please don't, please don't pass over those, those very first words of this, this verse that, that for God. You see, the only reason why 
we have the capacity to think about or even to talk about a definition of love is because there is actually a God. That you and I and every other human that's, that's ever been born or created was, was made in his image, in the image of God, so that we can then love. Jesus' birth says there is a God. And if you know the story, the story begins with God and the world depends on God. And here at Christmas, we find out in the story that God has a son named Jesus. John chapter 3 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now this idea of God having a son is one that, that is kind of hard to understand at times. It's a hard reality. It's hard to, to comprehend. For, for many religions, they don't know what to do with this truth. For, for Muslims, they, it sounds like blasphemy. They would say that it means that, that God must have had sex with an angel or a woman. And they don't know what to do with that. For Jehovah Witnesses, they just throw it out and say Jesus wasn't actually God. And so they don't have to worship him. And they wrongly think that Jesus is just a representation of God. But the truth is here, and what Scripture is teaching us, is that Jesus is actually 100% God. He's God in the flesh. And this is so crucial, it's so important that we actually understand and believe this because it's the baseline for our salvation and for the truth of the gospel. I want, to, I want to show you why this is true. The Greek word here in John is monogenous, and it's translated in English in a couple of different ways as, as only or one and only or the only begotten. And really what's happening here is, is God is using this term to distinguish Jesus as the only begotten Son of God from sons who were, who were made or sons who were adopted. He's saying Jesus is a different type of, of Son of God, basically. And this is important because as you look through Scripture, we find out other people are actually called sons of God as well. In Job chapter 1, we find out that angels are called sons of God. If you look through Scripture in Romans, you'll see that Christians, those that follow Jesus, are called sons of God. And so angels are sons of God because they're basically, by virtue, they're, they've been directly created by God. And Christians are called sons of God by being adopted into his family and joining the, joined to Christ through the Holy Spirit. But the term that John uses here, the one and only begotten son, is not a son by creation or a son by adoption. It's a son by begetting. That's, the, that's a word. Um, it's a son by begetting. C.S. Lewis says it this way, rabbits beget rabbits, horses beget horses, humans beget humans, not statues or portraits. And God begets God, not humans and not angels. And so when we look at this word, we actually understand that, that Jesus is actually the Son of God, 100% God. There was never a time when God had not begotten his Son. Because the begetting of his Son is actually equally eternal with the existence of God the Father. I know this is a lot of deep stuff, but this is important, right? Because Jesus is actually the Son of God, is a perfect personal image, a perfect representation, a perfect equal of the Father, just like the Holy Spirit is. You see, prior to Christmas, no one actually knew that Jesus actually existed. All we had heard of was God the Father and the Holy Spirit. 
As we look back through Scripture, we can see that Jesus existed there. But prior to that, no one had actually even knew that God had a son, that he actually existed with three persons in one divine essence. That's actually simply what it means to be God. It's the way that God has always existed from all eternity, without a beginning and without an end. And so when John says that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, it actually means that God sent himself. That Jesus coming at Christmas tells us that God who exists actually loves. That he loves. That Jesus loved the world. That God loved the world. You can say many things about God, but make sure you understand this. Make sure that you say this. He loves. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. John 3, 16, we just read, says, for God so loved. The so here doesn't mean like, um, like an amount of love, like he loved you so much or I loved you this much, right? The word so here is not an amount as much as it is actually a way of loving. It means God loved this way. This is the expression of his love, for God so loved, or God thus loved. God expressed his love to the world and to us by giving a gift of love, by giving himself. It's a, it's a giving type of love. God gives his most precious treasure. He gives himself, his son, so that he might be rejected and die for those who would reject him so that they might see their need of him and then have life and able to live in love. We need to meditate on that. We need to understand that at Christmas, that this is a very costly love. It's a very powerful love. It's a very rugged, a very painful love. It's the meaning of Christmas is really a celebration of all of those pieces of God's love. If you look prior to the statement that Jesus makes in John 3.16, I think we often just like skip over the verses ahead of it and skip over the verses after. But if you look prior to this in, in verse, prior to verse 16, you'll find out that Jesus was actually talking to the religious leaders of the day. And Jesus compares his own coming to what happened during the days of Moses. In the days of Moses, when, when people were rebelling against God and they were complaining and they were, they were saying, we're sick of your provision, God. We're tired of what you've given us. And if you look back at the story in the book of Numbers, you'll find out that the result of this rebellion was actually a plague of serpents, snakes that went all through the camp. And, and these snakes came through and they, they were biting people and people were dying everywhere. And the people came to Moses and they said, you've got to help us. You've got to go talk to God. You've got to ask God to send help. And so Moses prays for the people. And in Numbers chapter 1, verse 8, it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. That's a stick. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And so Jesus is referencing this story. And in John chapter 3, verse 14, he says this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then we get to verse 16, and it says, For God so loved the world that he gave its only Son. What that means is if you put all this together, that God gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus, to the world, a world of rebels, a world of, of serpent-bitten, sinful, 
perishing, dying people as their only hope to actually live. That the love for the world is really culminated in the person of Jesus bringing hope by making peace with God, peace between enemies, peace between rebels, peace where there, there was no hope for peace so that you and I might now get to live in joy and in hope. In Romans 5, it says it this way, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, as you think about love, the value and the manner of this love is not merely seen in the infinite value of what he gives out of himself, but in the rebellious nature of who he's actually given it to. And this is key for us to understand and to see. See, the more that we understand our rebellion, the more that we'll actually understand God's deep love for us. See, if we don't see our rebellion or our, or our need, then God loving us really won't be that great because we really don't need him. We can just be ourselves. But if we actually see our rebellion, then God's love for us actually grows deeper and deeper and deeper in our hearts. And the good news here in this verse is that love is for all who believe. The word says here, whoever. Whoever is a pretty powerful word, right? The good news is that, that God meant his son to be lifted up for a world of whoever's. A world of sinners. A sinners of all kinds. Of all degrees. Of all ways. The way that that the serpent was lifted up on the pole for all the people that were bitten by the snake is why God loved the world. He lifted up Jesus so that we could actually see and believe and understand that you and I have carried the poison of the serpent, the poison of sin in our lives for a long, long, long time. You see, God knows this truth. He's God. He knows everything. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. And the reality is that you and I are probably way worse in his eyes than we are in our own. We're in way worse shape. But that didn't stop him. In the depth of our unworthiness, God reached out through his son the only adequate sacrifice for our poison. The only antidote for our poison. And the good news is that God willingly did this. He willingly did it. Later on in John chapter 10, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. You see, if you look through these verses, and you see later on here in John chapter 10, Jesus was not constrained to love us. He's not obligated to love us. It's his actually joy to love us. 
You see, the reality and the depth of someone's love for you is not just defined by the pain that it costs them or how undeserving we are of it, but the depth of love is actually seen in how freely love is given. The more engaged, the more willing and glad and free someone is, someone's love is for us, especially if it's costly, the more amazing it is, the deeper it is. And that's how it was with Jesus. You see, we get to see the depth of Jesus' love actually in the freedom of it, in the willingness of his giving, in the eagerness of it, in the, in the gladness of it. You see, the good news is that Jesus was not forced into doing what he was not willing or eager to do. Jesus is not obligated by some contract that he made in eternity past. He's not obligated under some contract or constraint or command to, to have to love you and me. He wasn't under some kind of pressure to fix the broken world. Jesus actually joyfully walked into it. And he did it in joy, not because he like loved physical pain. He didn't get some, some pleasure out of the physical pain on the cross. It was, it was a very painful, unbearable time. But, but the depth of his love came from, from the freedom and joy that he had when he chose to love the world. That he loved us with all of his heart. Not a, not a fraction of it. Not a part of it. It wasn't just a slight inclination with like cosmic forces putting some pressure on him to do what he didn't want to do. Jesus willingly and freely came as a baby that very first Christmas to lay down his life because he loved us. Verse 18 of John 10 says this. Make sure you see this. No one has taken it from me, that's taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This is an amazing, astonishing verse. Do you understand what this said? He said, Judas didn't take it. It wasn't the mob in the garden. It wasn't Ananias, the high priest. It wasn't the false witnesses that came and bared witness against him. It wasn't the crowds that cried, crucify him. It wasn't Herod who sent him back to Pilate. It wasn't Pilate who handed him over to be crucified. It wasn't the soldiers who hammered the nails. What he's mean by this, he said, no one takes my life from me. What Jesus is saying is that at every point where it looked like I was under constraint, at every moment where I looked like I was being forced to do something that I didn't want to do, I was not being forced. I was choosing it. I was embracing it. In fact, my father and I were actually orchestrating it. Why? Because we love you. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. Basically, Jesus is saying, my love was free. And this is so important to hear because the lies often that we're told is that, that God doesn't really love you. He doesn't really love you. He's constrained to do that. He's obligated. It's really kind of very similar to the very same lie that the serpent told the very first humans. God doesn't love you. He's holding out on you. And they believed it. And I want to say we believe the same thing all the time. That God doesn't really love us that much. 
Jesus doesn't really love you that much. He's just a mercenary. He's in it for, for some other reason than love. He's under some other kind of constraint that, that he has to, some external compulsion. He doesn't really want to die for you. He's got he's to get himself out of this job somehow. There's some, there's some forces that are, that are making him or controlling him go to the cross. But the reality is Jesus actually anticipates this lie and he responds to it multiple times. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. You see, Jesus understands that if this weren't true, if his, if his death was forced on him, if his love wasn't free, if his heart wasn't really in it, then there would be a big question mark would be put over his love for us. If he didn't die willingly for us, if he didn't choose the suffering and embrace it, then how deep would his actually love be for us? And Jesus understands that, that lie. And he makes it explicit. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Literally in the Greek it says, that word here means from myself. From myself. It comes out of me. Not out of circumstances, not out of pressure, not out of of, of anything else but what I actually really long to do out of myself. You see, the depths of Jesus' love is found in the freedom of it. Yeah, at the, verse, the end of verse 18, it says, it says, ends with this, the commandment I've given from my Father. But that simply really means is that it shows that the Father's heart and Jesus' heart are in perfect harmony when he goes to the cross. That the Father loves and the Son loves and what the Son loves, the Father loves. That the command was not some burden, some constraint on, on God. And Jesus is reminding us this morning and reminding us this season that his love is free. And I don't say that's really, really good news, but it doesn't just end there. It doesn't just end at Christmas. I know it's Christmas, but we've got to talk about Easter because, because otherwise Christmas is just a nice holiday in the wintertime. And it's really not that cold here, even though I'm very cold this morning. Um, <laughs> And if you look at verse 18, it says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. And then look at this. I have the authority and I have the authority to take it up again. Do you hear what Jesus is saying here? I have authority from inside the grave as a dead man to take my life back again whenever I please. As you think about this statement, which is harder? Which is harder to control? When you die or or give yourself life again when you're dead? Which is harder to say? I can lay my, down, my life down on my own initiative. I could say that and then go step in front of a bus, right? But I can't say I will take it back again after I'm dead. The second is harder, and that's the point. If Jesus could and did take his life back again from the dead, then he was actually free to love us this way. You see, the resurrection is actually evidence that he was indeed free to lay down his life. The resurrection is Jesus' testimony of the freedom of his love. It's, it's proof that not only he has the power, but he actually meant it when he said, I love you completely. I freely love you. I meant what I said. I was able to avoid it, and I have the power to take my life up out of the grave. I could have devastated my enemies at the cross. But I freely chose this path. I chose it. I embraced it. I was not constrained in any way.
I have power over it. And now I'm alive to show you that I really love you. That I freely love you so that you might now live in freedom as well. I'm alive now, Jesus is saying, to spend eternity loving you with a resurrection love forever and ever and ever. That's Jesus' definition of love. You see, the Christmas story is just another glimpse into Jesus' powerful, all-encompassing love for us. You see, if Jesus so ruled the world, if he's in control of the world, where he could bring an entire census, entire worldwide census to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, he surely could have had a room for them in an inn. Right? If he could like get everybody in the world in a place where he wanted them, he probably could have got a room for them. He could have chose whatever he wanted, but he chose the path of a humble servant. Jesus could have been born into a wealthy family in a castle like other kings but he chose a manger to reveal himself to the working-class man of a shepherd. As Jesus walked this planet, he could have turned stones into bread in the wilderness so he could have some food. He could have called 10,000 angels to his, to his aid at any time. He could have called them when they were arrested in Gethsemane. He could have come down off the cross and saved himself. Yet he chose to walk in it because he loved you and me because he loved the world. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, the road to the cross began with a no vacancy sign at all the motels in Bethlehem. And it led to the spitting and the scoffing and the accusations and the beating and the denial of his love at the cross in Jerusalem. And then it culminated as he walked out of the grave three days later. And he did it all for your sake and my sake because he loved us. For the sake of his children, he became poor so that you and I might hear the love of God in our hearts where God would say, fear not, don't doubt my love for you. You no longer have to live in fear. You no longer have to live in fear that I love you. I freely loved you, and I offer my love to you. Jesus says, believe my promises. Accept the gift of myself. Don't be anxious about your life. Cast all your anxieties on me, because God loves you, and he cares for you. And there's hope, and there's peace, and Jesus says, let love give you true joy, not just at Christmas time, but throughout all eternity, as I will continually demonstrate and define what true love is over and over and over again. A love that passes all understanding and any definition that we could ever think of is the love of Jesus, the love of God. Jared read this verse earlier, but I want to just kind of, I want to close with it um, and just remind you what God says in 1 John chapter 3. It says, See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are children of God now. It does not yet appear what we shall be, 
But we know that when, it, when he appears, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's the truth. That's the love of God. That's the story of Christmas, that Jesus would come as a baby and willingly and joyfully and freely come so that he may die and then he might rise again for people like you and me who have been bitten by the snake and believed the lie that, we did, that he didn't actually love us and that we had to seek something else to fulfill our lives, something else that would give us hope, something else that would give us peace. And at Christmas, Jesus comes and says, nope, I'm wiping all that away, and I'm showing you the true love of what God looks like because I'm going to send myself because I am God. Our Father, we thank you that you willingly gave yourself for us. Father, we thank you that we get to understand a fraction of what your love is for us. Father, I pray that you would grow your deep love for us. Father, I pray that we would believe the truth of that, that we would walk in your peace and in your hope. Father, that those that don't yet know your love, Father, I pray that you would pursue them and that you would call them and that you would remind them of your truths this morning and throughout this season. Father, we thank you that we get to celebrate your coming and that we get to hope in the future that you are going to come again that you are actually going to restore the entire world. Father, we know that that is true because you've said it, it was, and that you've always kept your promises and that everything you've said has actually come true so far. So, Father, we wait in anticipation for the hope that you return and that you will bring true restoration to this world that we so desire. Father, we pray that you would remind us of that, that we would live in the truth of that this this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.